Dr. Stephen J. Gould. The most noble word in the English language, or its equivalent in any other language, is teacher. The only possible competitor is parent, and I would rank teacher as higher, because once you make the fundamental decision, you don't have much of a choice about parenthood, but people who teach do it, for the most part, for, for love and knowledge. And yet we do not honor teaching enough in this country. Teaching, which is the most noble of all professions, and at the secondary and primary level, the most important. We college teachers, look, minds are formed by the time you get to us. We, we can't do a lot. We can teach knowledge of certain areas. We can teach attitudes, but the forming of minds is primary and secondary school material. That's the most important job in America. And yet we accord it low pay and low status. The situation for science teachers is worse. I hope you appreciate the reason. I don't think it's far to seek. In the sciences, there are starting level jobs in the private sector and industry at twice the salary of almost any starting teacher's salary anywhere. And so scientists do not go into science teaching. In other fields, there aren't as many as opportunities. You do have a larger pool of, of better teachers. I've heard a frightening statistic. It's probably gotten somewhat better in the last couple of years. It's something on the order of 50% of the teachers teaching science in American high schools were not primarily trained in that field. Don't that necessarily means they're all bad teachers, but it does indicate something not quite right. Look, this is a capitalist nation, I accept that, and we have a legitimate self-interest in our own status, and therefore I've always said somewhat facetiously, although there is a serious point to it, that the best way to resolve this issue and get it at least started on the right path would simply be to double the salary of every primary and secondary school teacher tomorrow in America. I don't think it's that simple, of course, but then at least, at least status would be set and you could begin to get a proper appreciation for this singularly most important job in the United States today. Now, the second issue outside of teaching with respect to education is that unfortunately we live in a predominantly anti-intellectual culture. It's a culture that does not tolerate a whole lot of ambiguity, which is the essence of anything intellectual in our actual world. It's very complex out there. We're not even allowed to have opinions until we're told by opinion makers what was right. Nobody could tell who won the Bush to caucus debate until the commentators came on and told us, right? <laughs> it's, it's a world of sound bites and photo opportunities. But there is a key virtue to America, as I see it. We may be an anti-intellectual culture, but we are not committed to it. We're the most labile society that has ever been. We can change, if only because the media have that power to convince us about things. The cruelest aspect of the anti-intellectualism, and that's my optimism, the cruelest aspect of it is what it does to kids themselves at primary and secondary school levels, because obviously children are gonna reflect adult society. But in many ways, they hypertrophy it, make it even, make its bad characteristics even worse. And the status of the intellectual in many groups of kids is, I mean, it's something I've suffered from, and I presume it still happens. I mean, in my day, the class intellectual, a kid who was interested in science, that was me, was called a square or a doofus. My son tells me today, you're a wonk, a geek, or a dweeb, or something like that. <laughs> the point is that 
And it ha it's, it's, that's not universal childhood. It's our culture. It must be coming out of our culture. I read a very touching article many months ago pointing out that in Korea, where science education is taken very seriously and people do it very well, kids who are good in science are class heroes. They asked one young girl who her personal hero was, and she replied, Stephen Hawking. Would one American 10-year-old in a 1,000 say that? That'd be great. The problem is that playground ethic, as I call it. I know because that's what I suffered from. I was called fossil face on the playground. <laughs> you know, I wasn't allowed to cry, but it hurt. I tell you, it hurt. Now, I'm an obsessive. I was going to go into paleontology anyway. That wasn't going to drive me out. But others of equal or greater intellectual talent were surely driven out by that kind of attitude. There's an old saying, you've heard it, that English wars were won on the playing fields of Eton. It's a very elitist commentary about upper-class education, and it's probably correct. I like to say that American careers in science have been lost by the thousands on the playgrounds of Shady Oaks Elementary School, and that's a sad thing. Uh, one aspect of these meetings, as I've come to them over the years, is that you get too much advice, and I'm not going to indulge in that. I figure when I turn 50, which is close, I can start giving advice, but not yet. But I just, I just got to say one thing. That is, if you suffer from that as I suffered from that, just don't let them get you. Don't let them derail you. I guess they haven't, or you wouldn't be here and have done what you've done already. You're right. You'll prevail. <laughs> Education is a fragile reed, but if I can go back to the Bible again, as they say about wisdom, she's also a tree of life to them who lay hold upon her. Now, the museum's other role, to go to the second part of this, is preservation. So I do want to say something about extinction and environmental ethic in general. As you know, I'm a paleontologist. I study the pattern of life in the last 600 million years. The history of life has been punctuated with mass extinctions. In fact, my dear colleagues, Dave Raup and Jack Sepkoski in this city, have made the greatest contributions to mass extinction theory from my field in the last 10 or 20 years. A lot of it's being done right here. And some of these extinctions were horrendous. So the biggest of them may have wiped out 96% of marine invertebrate species. The end Cretaceous extinction to dinosaurs then hit about 50%. The, we, we don't really know, but at the rates of human-induced extinction today, I wouldn't be surprised if we're in the... I don't know it's going to go that far, but the rate of loss now may be comparable to those mass extinctions. Now, a lot of people say, misusing the data from my field, and that's why I want to talk about it, why worry about it? Look, the planet recovers. You had these horrible mass extinctions, but 10 million years down the road, everything's back, and you have interesting new possibilities. And that's true. That's right. The wiping out of the dinosaurs was probably a prerequisite to the rise of large mammals in the eventual. We wouldn't be here today. Mammals coexisted for dinosaurs for 100 million years and never got any bigger than this. They weren't making any progress against dinosaurs. If something out of the blue hadn't come and removed dinosaurs, mammals would still be little creatures in the interstices. Well, we wouldn't be discussing this. So I certainly accept the principle that recovery from mass extinction is a real and interesting phenomenon. But the point is, it occurs at the planet scale, which is a scale of millions of years. 
And that scale is irrelevant to our lives. We won't even last that long as a species if we're like most species. What, could, what conceivably could it matter to us that there might be a recovery from a mass extinction we induced 10 million years down the road that would do something interesting? The principle of appropriate scale, that's really the only message I want you to come away with from this talk. Principle of appropriate scale is enormously important. And we, in our parochialism, judging things by our heights, by the heights of our body and the lengths of our lives, just often get things terribly wrong because that's not nature's scale in many ways. Nature's scale is often much vaster. The scale of geological erosion, the scale of biological evolution is invisible by the scale of our lives. Below the motion of a dust particle subject to Brownian motion is not something important at our scale. So that you have to worry about appropriate scales. The point about extinction is that it hurts us now. It's not what paleontologists say about potential recovery. If I were to make a general defense for preservation in most cases of populations that are threatened, there are many bases on which to make such a case. There is the practical argument, it's the one most often used, and I certainly accept it, namely that there are unknown medical and agricultural benefits to be gained by many species, uncharted, which if lost we'll never know about. I think that's true. But I also think there's an ethical and aesthetic dimension that's probably equally or more important. The ethical argument being, of course, by what right do we, latecomers to this planet have to determine its fate in this way. And the aesthetic argument, which is most important to paleontologists and evolutionary biologists tend to go into their field because they love diversity, simply the beauty of diversity is going to be a pretty dull world, even if we get along in it, with only cockroaches, dogs, rabbits, and people. It's just not going to be fun. Now, just in a few closing comments, I'd like to enlarge that general notion of appropriate scale to the issue of a general environmental ethic in our environmental crisis. And again, it's the principle of proper scale, which is human lives and suffering, not what happens to the planet in millions of years. The planet will take care of itself in millions of years, and that is not an argument against lack of vigilance on environmental issues. That's what I want to say. This decade, the 1990s, a prelude to the millennium, is widely and correctly viewed as a turning point that will lead either to environmental perdition or stabilization. Look, we fouled local nests before, and we've driven regional, regional faunas to extinction, but we've never been able to unleash planetary effects before our current concern with ozone holes and putative global warming, etc. In this context, we're searching for proper themes and language to express our environmental worries. Now, I don't know that my field of paleontology is a great deal to offer. But I would advance one geological insight to combat a well-meaning, but I think seriously flawed and all too common position, and to focus attention on the right issue at the proper scale. Two linked arguments are often promoted as a basis for an environmental ethic. First, that we live on a fragile planet now subject to permanent derailment and disruption by human intervention. Secondly, that humans must learn to act as stewards for this threatened world. Now, such views, although they're very well-intentioned, to me are rooted in the old sin of pride and exaggerated self-importance. We're one among millions of species. We are stewards of nothing. 
By what argument could we, arising just a geological microsecond ago, become responsible for the affairs of a world four and a half billion years old, teeming with life that's been evolving and diversifying for at least three quarters of that immense span? Nature does not exist for us. It had no idea we were coming, and frankly, it doesn't give a damn about us. Omar Khayyam, the Rubaiyat, translated in the 1850s by Fitzgerald, old Persian poet, I think he was right in all but his crimped view of the earth as battered when he made this brilliant comparison of our world and human life on it to an eastern hotel, a caravanserai, a place where you park your camels at night. Omar writes via Fitzgerald, Think in this battered caravanserai, is metaphor for our planet. Think in this battered caravanserai, whose portals are alternate night and day, how sultan after sultan with his pomp abode his destined hour and went his way. That's right, that's what our life is like on this planet. Now this assertion of ultimate impotence could be countered if we, despite our late arrival, now held power over the planet's future. That's the first argument that I gave before, well-meaning but wrong. But you know, we don't, despite popular misperceptions about our might, we're virtually powerless over the Earth at our planet's own natural geological timescale. It's been calculated, Louis Alvarez did, that all the megatonnage in all our nuclear arsenals yields about one ten-thousandth the power of the 10-kilometer asteroid that might have triggered the Cretaceous mass extinction. Yet the Earth survived that larger shock and in wiping out dinosaurs, as I've said before, paved a road for the evolution of large mammals, including humans. We fear global warming, yet even the most radical model yields an Earth far cooler than many happy and prosperous times of a pre-human past. We can surely destroy ourselves, and we can take many other species with us, but we can barely dent bacterial diversity, and we'll surely not remove many species, millions of species of insects and mites. On geological scales, our planet, I think, will take very good care of itself and let time clear the impact of any human malfeasance. Now, people who do not appreciate the fundamental principle of appropriate scales, the only thing I'm trying to get across, often misread such an argument, the one I just gave, as a claim that we may therefore cease to worry about environmental deterioration, just as some apologists for unbridled development argue, just as falsely, that we need not fret about extinction. But I want to raise the same counter-argument that I did on extinction. We cannot threaten at geological scales. I think that's right. But such vastness is entirely inappropriate to our lives, to what's happening now. We have a legitimately parochial interest in our own lives, the happiness and prosperity of our children, the suffering of our fellows, and I mean other species as well as us, the planet will recover from nuclear holocaust, but we will be killed and maimed by billions, and our cultures will perish. The Earth will prosper if polar ice caps melt under a global greenhouse, but most of our major cities, which happen to be built at sea levels because they were ports and harbors, will founder, and changing agricultural patterns will uproot our populations. I think, if I may make one historical comment, we have to squarely face an unpleasant historical fact. Conservation movement, from which the environmental movement 
pales, was born in large part as an elitist attempt by wealthy social leaders to preserve wilderness as a domain for patrician leisures and contemplation, kind of against the image, so to speak, of poor immigrants traipsing in hordes through the woods with their Sunday picnic baskets. That really is the 19th century context of much of early conservation for all the very wonderful things it did. We've never entirely shaken this legacy of environmentalism as something opposed to immediate human needs particularly to needs of the impoverished and unfortunate. But the third world expands, and it contains most of the pristine habitats that we yearn to preserve. Environmental movements cannot prevail until they convince people that clean air and water, solar power, recycling, and reforestation are best solutions, as they are, for human needs at human scales, and not for impossibly distant planetary futures. Now, I want to close with a decidedly unradical suggestion about an appropriate environmental ethic, one rooted in the issue of appropriate scale again versus the majesty but irrelevance of geological time. Look, I've never been much attracted to Kant's notion of a categorical imperative in searching for an ethic, that is, to a moral law that can be seen as absolute and unconditional and does not involve any ulterior motive or end. Look, the world is too complex and sloppy for such uncompromising attitudes, and God help us if we embrace the wrong principle and then fight wars, kill, and maim in our absolute certainty. You know, I prefer the messy ethics that Kahn called hypothetical imperatives, the ones that invoke desire, negotiation, reciprocity. Of these lesser but altogether wiser and deeper principles, one has stood out for its independent derivation with different words but to the same effect. In culture after culture, I imagine that our various societies grope towards this principle because structural stability and basic decency necessary for any tolerable life demand such a maxim. Christians call this principle the golden rule. Plato, Rabbi Hillel, and Confucius knew the same maxim by other names. I cannot think of a better principle based on enlightened self-interest. If we all treated others as we wish to be treated ourselves, then decency and stability would have to prevail. Now, I suggest that we execute such a pact, that is a golden rule pact, with our planet. She holds all the cards, and she has immense power over us. So such a compact, which we desperately need, but she does not at her own time scale, would be a blessing for us and an indulgence for her. We'd better sign the papers while she's still willing to make the deal. If we treat her nicely, she'll keep us going for a while, which is all you ever get in evolution, by the way. If we scratch her, she'll bleed, then kick us out, bandage up, and go about her business on her planetary scale. Poor Richard, that is Benjamin Franklin, told us in one of his aphorisms that necessity never made a good bargain. So you might think maybe we better not do that. But you know, the earth is kinder than human agents in what's known these days as the art of the deal. Uh, the earth will uphold her end. And so I'll end with the third reference, biblical. The earth will uphold her end. We must now go and do likewise. Thank you.